Welcome to Future Ed, the show that explores the future of education. I'm your host, Peter Croft. Our guest on this episode is David Turner, freelance investment writer, financial journalist and author at Turner Writing Services. Before setting off on his own, David worked for the Financial Times in various roles, including Tokyo correspondent and education correspondent. David has also written several books, including the main subject of this episode, The Old Boys, The Decline and Rise of the Public School, published through Yale University Press. In this episode, David explains the general characteristics of elite British schools known as public schools in the UK, what surprised him the most during his research for his book, and what impact these schools have had on history and culture around the world. David discusses the four phases of public school history, the reasons these schools are unique and what they do well, as well as what they need to be doing better. He explains why he believes these schools have managed to survive and indeed thrive over time, and why they are currently experiencing a golden era. David also discusses some of the challenges these schools are likely to face in the coming years and what they are doing about those threats, as well as the impact of the global pandemic. David has done deep research on many of the elite British schools and has rare insight into their histories, philosophies, and collective impact. We hope you enjoy hearing David's insights. David Turner, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Why did you write The Old Boys? Well, my the idea came when I was the education correspondent for the Financial Times, and I noticed that people would often cite public school, or as they call them, independent school history, to support their arguments. But I was sceptical that they knew very much about uh, history. So, for example, politicians and, I suppose, reformists kept saying that public schools were set up to educate the poor and no one no one, none of my colleagues in in journalism had looked into that so i started reading around and trying to work out whether this was true and that piqued my interest and it went on from there i suppose what was your biggest surprise when you did the research uh, for writing this book uh, two really the first was i was surprised at how often how such large numbers of public schools were struggling, even schools that we are regarded these days as probably all pretty much top tier or almost top tier, struggled for probably most of their history. So University College School, a big, very academic London day school, it just seemed to lurch from one financial crisis to the next until about, until I suppose the great golden age of the public schools from about the 1980s. Another thing that really surprised me was how bad public schools were or many public schools were for most of their or much of their history. So the public schools, I think, had were fairly distinguished uh, for the first couple of centuries, beginning with 40, when they began in the 14th, late 14th century. So up to perhaps about 1700, the small number of public schools there were were not bad but then they had a period of about a quarter of a millennium of being not very good 
although for some of this period they got rather better. So they were quite bad at teaching people, and they were also cruel places, and the old boy actually got killed. So that was a bit of a surprise. Uh, and the, the final surprise, I suppose, was how close they came to extinction. So in the early 19th century, the number of boys, because at this point we didn't really have girls' private schools, the number of boys at, at public schools was really tiny, at a guess. It might only have been 1,500, a couple of thousand, at the old established ones. And I think they came quite close to just being snuffed out altogether. That was a bit of a surprise. How do you define public school? This is a really hard question. And I noticed with amusement that the reviewer of the Guardian newspaper, which is generally anti-public school, has slightly made fun of me for my rather convoluted definition. But the trouble is that any definition which is worth its salt seems to me to change over time inevitably. If if public schools have been going for more than six centuries, you're going to have to change the definition over time. So I went for the definition that, more or less, it's their schools independent of state control, which have primarily educated members of the elite. And by the elite, I mean the top 10%, and socioeconomically perhaps, with the purpose of providing at least some of the pupils with a genuinely academic education for university, uh, preparatory university study. Now, almost that, almost all of them now charge high fees to do that. But in the past, there are periods when they didn't. So St. Paul's School, one of the most distinguished of all, had uh, you could it had no fee payers for for um, centuries. It just had um, scholars and other schools have had been very largely scholars for periods of their history. Nowadays, the vast bulk of them pay fees. They're one or two like Atlantic College, I suppose. You call that a public school. I don't think that's fee paying. What kind of impact have British boarding schools, public schools had on the field of education in general in the UK and across the world? I think their impact has been disguised, ironically, by the fact that they have been so influential. So a lot of the things that are widespread across many schools in many countries either originated with the public schools or were first popularised by them. So prefects, for example, prefects were actually invented by Merton College, Oxford. So there are older boys who were there to look after younger boys because in the Middle Ages, people often went to Oxford or Cambridge as young as 14. So they're almost like schools. Um, but and, and so the public schools borrowed this from Merton College and popularised it to the point where it then became standard among the grammar schools. Uh, even um, my daughter's state primary school, they're, uh, well, they're a head boy and head girl, deputy bo- head boy, deputy head girl. I suppose they're prefects. And I think it's common in lots of other countries. So prefects, so prefects is one area that had a big impact. Organised sports is another one. So for many centuries, public schools had what you might call disorganised sports. The boys engaged in various team sports and then various slightly shady activities like uh, poaching local 
local landowners um game and so on and and throwing throwing stones at local animals and things and then in the early 19th century cotton the headmaster of marlborough was brought in after there'd been a rebellion and the previous head had resigned there were quite a lot of public school rebellions at, at the time there might have been about 20 over 50 years more than that, I think. And he decided to organise sports as a form of crowd control. So uh, I suppose to, to prevent the boys from getting up to mischief, uh, from keeping them all in the same, in a, somewhere where he could keep an eye on them. And I think that became pretty widespread, not just in public schools, but in other schools. Um of course, all of these things, you could argue that there are, we, we couldn't say that public schools are solely responsible, that other schools must have thought the same thing at the same time. But but public schools are very influential in these fields. Two final, two other things. So the house system. So originally houses were just places where the boys lived. So just literally a house, a local house. So the scholars would live in the school and the other boys, often called commoners, would live in houses in the town. And then eventually it became formalised as a system of, of um, competition, I suppose, between different uh, groups of boys uh, and also a form of policing, a way of um, you'd have a housemaster and a head of house keeping an eye on the children's welfare, trying to prevent them from abusing each other. They Often they did. And then... Um, and then Slightly related to the house system is the very intense relationship between teachers and children, a semi-parental relationship. So looking at a bit in my book, so uh, the, the, there's a lovely um, quote from Marlim, who was a headmaster of Wellington College in the early part of the 20th century. And he said, the headmaster looking for recruits cannot forget that he is looking for the house masters of the future. In his eyes, no technical skill in the presentation of a subject will atone for the absence of the sympathy, the insight, and the personality without which no man can win the loyalty and confidence of his house. So really, he really prized the relationship between um, master and pupil within the house system. And then Anthony Selden, who's probably the most famous private school headmaster in Britain over the past 20 years or so who's now um, a university head he became headmaster of, uh, uh, master actually as a head master of wellington um several decades later and and he said that he estimated the relationship between the house master or house mistress and their pupil has perhaps a third one third he said in common with that of parents but that if there was a problem uh perhaps there was a bit of parental neglect then it, be it became much more important than that so i think I think those are, there are many others, but those are four key areas in which public schools have been very influential, I think. Would you give a brief history? Uh, in your book, you mentioned uh, different phases that public schools have been through. Would you just mind briefly explaining what those were? So the first public school was Winchester College, founded in um, the late 14th century. And... It was set up to 
as a preparatory school by William of Wickham to essentially to train boys for preparation to prepare them for then attending the Oxford College he'd founded called New College. And then uh, Eason was founded, was the next one founded in the next century with a similar system that the aim would be that it would prepare boys for uh, a King's College, Cambridge, which is ironically now a very left-wing school that doesn't really like public school um, children. And and so these early schools, I think, were in the first couple of centuries were quite academic. The t- education was often quite good. There were, for periods of a few decades, a school might be in the ascendant, might account for a might educate a huge proportion of the elite. So Westminster School, for example, educated enormous numbers of the most famous and distinguished people of the late 17th century after the Civil War. So I'd say that was generally a benign and good period for the public schools. And then things started to get worse, possibly, probably even in the latter part of the 17th century, um, Westminster, Westminster School had a very distinguished head called Richard Busby for literally about half a century, but he became very mean, penny-pinching, uh, started trying to keep more of the money for himself. The education at Westminster declined. Education at the other colleges often declined with a little bit of, oh, I suppose, what you call these days, peculation, a little bit of... Um, uh, siphoning off of money by the, the head or the governors. And then there was a lot of bullying, uh, which I suppose is related to that. It's related to the fact that they didn't, they didn't have quite enough teachers. They weren't spending enough money on the school. So you might have only a few masters and a couple of hundred boys. It becomes hard to control them. And then you had a period, probably the nadir was a period from about 1770 to about 1850, you had various rebellions of the public schools. I think Winchester and Eton had about seven each. Uh, you had quite a lot actually in 1848, the year revolutions in Europe. I don't think there are many injuries, but there, the uh, at Winchester, uh, the boys took the uh, the warden to the head of the governor's prisoner. Uh, and hold him up in his house, looked after him, made sure he couldn't escape overnight. The rugby school, it got s- serious to the point they had to call the local militia who had to arrive armed and take retake the school. So that was probably the Nadi. And then the and then there was a long period of the public schools gradually getting better. Uh I start with why they got better. So there are a couple of influential heads. There was Arnold at a rugby school who reintroduced, I think, quite a healthy form of Christianity to the school, revivified the prefect system, gave the prefects more power, but taught them they couldn't abuse it. He had a lot of disciples who became heads at other schools, and they tried to uh, follow his example. Uh, and and there was a bit more teaching of science, but but actually, there were, education was pretty patchy. Science teaching was quite paltry and poor. There was a lot of bullying and abuse. 
uh, and it only gradually got better. And then, and then, so the last phase I'd say would be it gradually got better till about the 1970s. And then I think there was quite, or, or 60s, 70s, but I think there was quite rapid change. And I think this was because of the uh, greater money spent on state education, on the grammar schools. Uh, it became more competitive to get into Oxbridge. Became more competitive in life that the upper classes and upper middle classes could no longer rely on family connections for their careers. Uh, they had to have careers um, with the decline of um, earnings from landowning from classes, and so I think the public schools then got rapidly got quite a lot better. Probably actually from about the sixties uh, to the point where now I now I think is their golden age. So. They're quite beset politically, but they now teach to a very high standard. And if there's a golden age for the public schools, I'd say it's now. That's the fourth age, I suppose. So the four ages are foundation and flourishing, then decline, then gradual rise, and then rapid rise to a golden age. Those are the four ages. What do you think public schools have been doing well? over the last sort of 10, 20 years in this golden age? Would you expand on how they've adjusted? They're very good at innovation. If, if we're going to list about the past 10 or 20 years, so that's a bit more recent. They're very good at innovation. So, for example, they when GCSEs were getting a bit easy and A-levels were getting a bit easy and a bit, oh, a bit learning by race in a way, I... Um, and not rewarding pupils for showing initiative and intellectual, being uh, intellectually self-starting, I suppose. Then they started looking at other qualifications. So Winchester College and Downhouse and some other schools devised the pre-U qualification, pre-university qualification, just more like the old A-level. A lot of them went for IGCSEs, so international GCSEs that were probably a bit more rigorous than GCSEs. So they're very, very good at innovation. That's that's been one of their great strengths. Uh, I'd say um, they. I think they've become a lot much kinder places. I think this is partly because a lot of the day schools have become co-ed schools, and I think having girls introduces a note of kindness and reduces some of the bullying and just some of the unnatural aspects of being at a single sex school and um and i think also there's been a lot of actually a lot of spending by the schools on a better pastoral system so when i back, went back to my old school king's college school wimbledon quite an academic school but there was a deputy head there i went back when i was writing the book there was a deputy head there who did either no teaching or very little teaching, who was the deputy head for pastoral activities. There's a lot more emphasis on the mental well-being of children, I think. there was That was always there, because I, I talked earlier about the, the, the notion of being like a parent, but I think it's more consistently applied now. Those are some areas where I think they've been doing well. What do you think is unique about the public schools? Why do parents still want to send their children there? I think in the old days, so most have changed 
over the years? Well, some of the motives are the same, but have become more important. Some of them become less important, and there are probably new motives. So I think that there have always been parents who wanted to send them there primarily so they could get a good academic education. So in the old days, it was so they could train to be in the profession, so priests or lawyers or doctors uh, or academics, I suppose. Um, And I think probably that's become progressively more important. So, for example, the head of one school I interviewed, it might have been Birkenhead, told me that it's quite, that, that, that generally if a child is good at science and the humanities, but they'll probably end up doing science A-levels and the parents want to do science A-levels for their career. So I think there's there's more consistently an emphasis on getting a good education so you can have a good job afterwards. Uh, and the the notion that they should be there to talk to be taught moral qualities, I think that um, I think that's still there a bit, but less than it was. I think there were times in the past when moral qualities trumped everything else. So I've got a little piece here. So 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 for example, this is. Uh, a comment by um, a businessman, an old boy of Ellesmere College in Shropshire. And he's, he, he tells the head why he's entering his son for the school in the 1940s. He says, uh, um, if Ellesmere can guide him to stand on his own feet and teach him to be true and to look after others first and himself last, I shall be satisfied. Actually, when I think about it, they are, I, think, I think that's still there in the public schools. Um but, but, but another one which is more extreme, I suppose, which illustrates my point of how priorities among parents have changed. Or, well, actually, this is from a public school master from, I think, about the same time. He says, um, a boy, when he leaves a public school at the age of 18, will very likely imagine that Michelangelo was a musician or that Handel wrote comic verse. He will be unable to tell you the difference between rates and taxes. But this master says he would still send his son to a school, such a school. He said, he can get in a public school, but he could not get anywhere else in any country. He will learn self-reliance and will acquire certain other moral qualities, a sense of duty and fellowship, a knowledge of how to command and how to obey. So that shows you the priorities. I think those priorities have changed, but actually parents wouldn't put it in that language, but I think they still want... They'd like their pupils to be taught to be kind, and they wouldn't talk about the need of commanding and obeying, but they talk about leadership qualities and learning leadership qualities. The final um, motivation, I think, is the, and I think this has become a lot less important, is just appearing to be a public school man, having a public school accent, public school pattern, I think that's become a lot less important. So there was a, a headmaster of Harrow called Cyril Norwood who wrote in the 30s that he was worried that some boys were being sent to public school so they could as a form of, as acquire the social badge and the right accent and so on. Uh, I think that's a lot less important now. I think that now in Britain, people who are quite posh 
will probably tone down their voices and appear less posh than they are. For much of British history, it's been the opposite. So I think that having a public school accent, and I don't think that's a big thing anymore. What would you say to our American listeners about the value of a specifically British public school education? What is unique about public schools that you don't find anywhere else? Well, one thing I see if I compare this with state schools in Britain, which are run by dedicated, hardworking people. But one thing that's different is that public schools will often, institutionally, I think they find it easier to go the extra mile. I I think they're less weighed down by uh, having to meet rules and regulations. And they can just say, you know what, I'm going to spend an hour a day doing this or that. They're more weighed down than they were before because of exam culture and the need to keep to the syllabus. But so, for example, when I was education correspondent at the FT, one state school head would complain to me that the, the latest among many directives from the government was that all state schools had to uh, explain how they were interacting with their community and draw up some kind of community cohesion plan. And this was an extremely time-consuming and um, pointless thing to do. Uh, but I think I think at public schools, I think these days, I think they, in the old days, they hated being anywhere near the community and um, uh, tried to do, were essentially monastic in a way. But these days, they like being part of their community, but they're not going to write big reports on it. They're just going to do it. And so I think they have a bit more freedom than state schools. And another thing that I that, that makes them unique, at least in Britain, so in other words, when compared with state schools, is I, I, actually, I'll give you an example, which I think illustrates this. So um, I interviewed the headmaster of Birkenhead School, which is a public school in the Northwest uh, for the book. And he said that he had a pupil who he wanted to be a dentist, so he was doing science A-levels, but he loved German. And so the headmaster, he'd been a modern languages teacher, he taught German. And so every week they read a German book together. And he said, I've just finished this morning reading a book, uh, a German book with this boy. And the boy said, I really enjoyed that so much. What can we read next? And I think public schools are very good at that. I think some of the masters and mistresses these days work incredibly long hours and uh, are prepared to, are still prepared to do that kind of thing. It's not something that flatters the exam results, but just for the sake of education, they're prepared to do that kind of thing. And I think it's easier for them to do it, partly because union power isn't as big and in in um, public schools and because there's less regulation and they're hampered less by having to devote time to kind of community cohesion papers and all manner of um, uh, procedures and reports and so on that um, that state schools have. You wrote the epilogue hmm. as, as a kind of afterthought of where public schools are going, perhaps some of the future. 
what would you have written if you'd done that again yesterday instead of five years ago when you wrote the book? Well, uh, actually, I I thought about this, and I don't want to appear uh, unusually prescient and wise, but actually, I don't think there's that much I would have changed because, uh, well, part of the epilogue was devoted to talking about Eton and the fact that Eton had educated, I think at the time it was 17 prime ministers. And I said, and David Cameron won't be the last. And sure enough, the next prime minister but one is an old Etonian, uh, Boris Johnson. And um, and so I think that, I think that the threats to public schools are the same, but I think that they, the, the widespread notion among the bulk of the public that they might be unfair, disgraceful, generally bad things, I don't think that really exists. Um, so I, I can't think of much I would change. I would probably actually, I would probably try and emphasize more um, in the epilogue that a lot of people who work for public schools are very dedicated and genuinely believe that what they're doing is the right thing. Because I, when I read the reviews by one or two of the more left-wing papers, I thought they were really unfair or, 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 or actually, and, and when I've read books um, about public schools since that are very party pre and very anti them, I'm left with an overwhelming sense that I think they're being very unfair and almost like Marxists treating public school masters as tools of capital, as a Marxist would put it. So I make a little plea for um, kindness towards public school, public school staff, I suppose, sentimentally. So what are the threats? What are the opportunities that you see on the horizon for public schools? The biggest threat is not the threat that people think of uh, that most people think of which is uh, that the notion that they might be abolished because previous left labor governments well at least several a, a number of labor governments have wanted them to be abolished wanted them to be curtailed and it never worked they never managed to do it it was a very hard thing to do legally there wasn't much public appetite for it Doing so would mean that you would suddenly have to spend a lot more on state education to absorb the 7% or so of the children who go to public schools. Um, and so I don't think, even when it appeared that Corbyn might possibly get in, I didn't really think that public schools were in, in danger in that way. But I think the greatest, I think there are a couple of threats. One is there is a political threat, but it's slightly different. It's that the top universities will find it harder and harder to take in public school pupils. Oh, I, I suppose I should point out that no one calls them public schools these days. They call them private schools or independent schools. But as a historian, I, I'll keep calling them public schools. And so I think that when I've talked to senior tutors at university at good universities they they really feel under pressure uh to take more state school pupils so 
remember I spoke to the um, someone at Peterhouse College, uh, quite a public school, Cambridge College, um, at least when I was at the FT, who was genuinely upset at the fact that when they looked at all the numbers, uh, they hadn't reduced the number of the, the, the number, I think the proportion of entrants from public school had new undergraduate from public school had increased. Um, and I spoke to, I spoke to a Don, well, a, a lecturer at a, a London university college who's actually at my old school um, once. And he said that the top 10% of the pupils he'll take wherever they're from. But he said, he said for the rest, he'll have a little bit of a bias if they're from state school towards taking them. It, it, so, so in other words, if you have two pupils of equal ability, he would probably take the state school one. And so I think, I think the threat then is that if public schools can't get, don't have an advantage in getting their children into the top universities, then that could be a problem. But I think it's a problem that can be solved because they would just change en masse to going to US colleges and the Australian colleges and so on. And there are schools that do take a that do send a lot more to the US. And from from all I've heard, US colleges just just love these people because they're educated to a high standard. Um, they make for very good undergraduates. Uh, another threat is, I suppose, I suppose it's a problem of success, which is that because of the demand for public school education, they have uh, reached a point where they can charge very, very high fees. And the fees have periods of going up quite rapidly. The fees are now incredible. I, I lose track of how much they are, but they're incredibly high uh, to the point where, say, for example, I have a friend who's a city lawyer, so pretty well paid. And he said that uh, a fellow partner at his firm even a fellow partner of his firm was complaining about the cost of boarding school fees for his two sons and how tough it was for him. Uh, and, and he and he's very wealthy by, by top 0.1% of the population income or more. Um, and so I think what will happen is if there's a, well, there will be a recession. So if there's a, if there's a, a severe recession, which severely affects the key public school clientele, which is the top 10% of the population by income, a particular top 5%, then I think public schools will find it hard to wean themselves off these high fees. Once you've started charging high fees and spend a lot of money on various things, I think you find it very hard to then prune your expenditure, uh, spend less on buildings, spend less on staff and so on. Uh, I know that's a problem that, head, that public school headmasters talk about, but they say that they're slightly trapped in a situation where they have to charge high fees because they have to spend a lot on staff and facilities because all their rivals do. And so we're stuck in this facilities and staffing arms race. So I think those are two, those are the top two threats, I think. Is that why a lot of them, do you think, are, are expanding into Asia and the Asian markets? Well, I, I think... I think that was originally impelled by local business people wanting to do it and and 
I think public schools are constantly badgered by people from all over the world saying, I'd love to set up a franchise. Because for, for, for most of these schools, most of the work is done by the local franchise partner and um, and the public schools will, they may well, they I'm sure they'll have a say in which head is appointed. They might even, they might well send one of their own staff as the head. Um, but a lot of the legwork is done locally. And, and I, so I think that was, that was impelled by local demand for setting up these service these schools, but but they've agreed to it. So clearly, they must public schools must see a value to it. They get a fair amount of money from it. They have to have a lot of overseas pupils to get to the point where um, they get a lot of money. And I don't think they use the money to reduce fees in, in the home schools. I think they use it to build buildings, but most of all, I think they use it to um, fund more bursaries. Um, so they reduce fees for, um, not he not headline fees, but fees for poorer pupils. And, 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 and by doing that, of course, then they boost their academic results because they can take uh, bright children whose parents aren't particularly well off. So you mentioned these threats. What do you see schools doing in response to those threats? Um, well, as I mentioned, I think the public schools are doing very well at building links with overseas universities. And I think public schools, have a, they have a lot of volunteering and work in the local community. And I think that really helps their cause because they're seen as less isolated places, detached, less detached from society. I don't think they're cynically having big voluntary service um, programs and so on in order to work on their PR. I think they see it as a good thing in itself and in a way part of their historical tradition because they, they used to have missions in um, poor areas. So that's not, that's not very different in a way. But I think that does help their cause when they're faced under political threat. So I'd say, for example... It's very hard to tell, but I'd say Brighton College, which I know quite well because I wrote their history, I would be quite surprised if it wasn't quite popular with, with large parts of the Brighton population because of the large number of things it does there. Also, my old school, Kings, in Wimbledon, they have teachers who teach at, um, or at least did teach at the school that my children were going to, the local state school, Coombe Girls, local comprehensive and so I think they can be quite popular locally. Um, that will help the cause. I don't know how much you've been keeping up with uh, how things are being run during COVID-19, but do you have any idea of how those schools are responding to what's going on? And, and do you see any of those responses turning into permanent changes? Yeah, I have, I have been keeping an eye on it because uh, I've been quite interested and I've been asking the i say most of my friends are sending their children to public school and i've been asking them i've been asking them what they think of the of, of uh, the provision and i've been asking um parents who send their children to state schools other than my my daughters um i think public schools are doing 
pretty well and probably doing more consistently well than other state schools. Some state schools have been doing pretty well, um, but uh, so, f so for example, um, at St. Paul's Junior School, a lot of the younger masters who don't have a family and commitments have been doing enormous amounts of live lessons. I, th I think there is this fear that if they don't do well, parents are going to demand fee discounts or take their children away altogether. State schools don't, they don't have this fear. And I think state schools are also, uh, as I referred to before, I think they're hobbled by various other things they have to do. And, and they're hobbled by the fact that if they, say, offer live lessons, some of them do do live lessons, but if they offer them live lessons, well, what happens if um, vulnerable children from poorer backgrounds um, can't attend the live lessons because um, they don't have uh, the right parental support and so on. There's a bit of leveling down, I think, among some state schools in their response. So I think public schools will, at the beginning of the crisis, I thought they might lose out. But I think now they'll probably gain from the crisis. They have a long tradition, of course, of dealing with health issues. So um, Eastbourne College back in the 1870s, perhaps, or Victorian era, the, um, in their prospectus, they point out that they're a couple of miles away from um, the sewage system of Eastbourne in a, in a nice um, green and pleasant area. And then... Uh, and I think public schools are very good at dealing with extreme ructions. So, uh, so for example, Oppingham School, um, uh, there was an outbreak of some disease in Victorian times, and the school was just entirely relocated to Borth in Wales for a while and then went back. And during the Second World War, lots of the public schools were put in other places and seemed to survive quite well institutionally. So as to whether this portends something more permanent for the future, I suppose it's theoretically possible that Chinese parents will say, uh, my child, why can't, perhaps my child could entirely be educated online. Uh, I think probably they, they'll still want face-to-face -face contact um, the uh, local branches of these public schools but if we have if we have further outbreaks of um, coronaviruses and other diseases as i think may well happen they're quite serious i think probably um, these might become more frequent uh, i think public schools have proved that they're good at responding to this is there anything these public schools are not doing that perhaps you're hearing from your friends as parents or other members the, of a society that you talk to that they're not doing well? Well, I, I think one thing that all schools are finding it hard to do, and it's simply that public schools are no exception, is uh, it's a bit harder to be, to go off syllabus and be inspiring and interesting Uh simply because exams have become so important. So, so I went to a school in, um, I went to, uh, for a day to a public school in York, for example, and um, actually it was a school that educated Guy Fawkes, 
St. Peter's School, York, as all the boys are very fond of telling me. And uh, they had a really high quality lesson that were, in geography that was devoted specifically to here is how you're going to get a better mark in GCSE. It wasn't really teaching geography. It was teaching the exam. And they're doing their job. They're doing in, in having lessons like that. But it, it's sometimes genuine. Oh, I mean, I'm actually a fan of exams and testing. Genuine education can be squeezed out. Um, and I spoke to, for my book, I spoke to a former pupil of Down House, who would probably now be in her early 30s, Dan House being a, a girls' boarding school in the South. And she said that she felt over her time there, the number of teachers who are fascinating, brilliant, eccentric mavericks probably declined. There were more who were there who were just teaching to the test. Uh, I think that's a challenge for all schools. But there is, I was just looking up an example from the book of how it can be done well. So, for example, the head of Downside, which is a big Catholic boarding school, he was saying how they were going to start teaching uh, the, in English the poems of Christina Rossetti, a Victorian poet. And they were going to look into... The, the, the head was thinking of talking about um, her connections, the, the, the uh, religious imagery in her poems and her connections to um, Anglo-Catholics like uh, fellow poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. So that's an interesting example where they're going beyond the syllabus and imbuing it with the specific uh, ethos of, the, of that Catholic school. So I think it's still happening, um, but in a way, schools are they're in a bit of a quandary. They have a dilemma because either they can... Um, they can teach them a test and deliberately miss at times in providing a broader education, or they can do the opposite and then um, suffer in their results. So other misses. Um, let's see. Well, I suppose I, I think that um, I think there are still abuses at boarding schools. I think they still haven't quite worked out all of them. Um, how um, how to prevent bullying um, from what I hear. I, I hear of um, parents, I won't mention any particular schools, but I hear of parents of um, who've talked about how their child was very badly bullied, might have left, might have switched schools. So there was one school, um, was one, one example of a boarding school where a, a day school head was telling me about if he'd received a boy who was he liked and he'd, he'd pretty good academically, nice boy. And he'd been at a boarding school where other boys had ganged up on him and made him, I think, kept doing apple pie beds and so on. And and when the, when the parents raised it with the head, the head said it was just all good, clean, boyish fun. I don't think they've completely, I think, I think they've reformed that a lot, but I think there are still some pastoral problems at boarding schools, I would say. As a whole, education is a big subject, of course, and you were focusing on one specific area. But do you see any trends? Do you see anything that um, that you see is going to change in education as a whole? I think it will get even more politicised. Um, so, for example, 
I don't think it will become as politicized as in the universities, but um, if you think of the um, so the, the calls for the decolonization of the English curriculum at Cambridge, for example, and teaching. Um, so, so I think I think there are calls for a, to have compulsory um, papers on um, uh, writers from outside Britain and America, English-speaking writers outside Britain and America, and and so I think it'll be. I think I think that's a general trend in education: greater politicization, and it will be hard for the public schools to navigate that. Um, I think that um, I. I I, at, at some universities, there have been um, uh, increases in the pupil-teacher ratio. As I say, historically, there's been a general rise in that. Um, but actually, that's an example of of where um, that's an example of where I suppose public schools have managed to resist the trend because actually they've gone towards having progressively lower pupil-teacher ratios. Um, I think there's a move towards. I think there's. Um, these are all quite small things, actually, but I think there's a, a big, a bigger trend for more world learning. Would you call it so? Learning about world history, learning about world literature. Um, so not just doing Milton and Keats, but doing um, oh, Naipaul or um, other uh, authors like that who aren't who aren't uh, white British and American. Um, so, so I'll give you an example in, in history. So, so my younger daughter, she's doing her topic is Islamic civilization. They wouldn't have done that at a state school or a private school 20 years ago. Probably a good thing that they're learning more about um, world affairs. Um, yeah, those are trends, I think. Oh, sorry, another one. Sorry, another one is, sorry, is I, I think there's more... Um, Globally, I think there's more interest in um, uh, teaching pupils to uh, discuss and debate. And I think that this is one reason why Chinese um, parents like uh, British public schools, because a lot of them want, want their children to because um, China has a very uh, hierarchical relationship that say that, and as does Japan, which I know quite well, um, the teacher says something, I mean, you write it down, I mean, you regurgitate it in an essay or, or other exercise. Um, you don't debate things with your teacher. And a lot of ch Chinese parents, they've sent um, pupils to uh, schools in Britain, Australia, New Zealand, because they like that kind of... Um, discursive style. I, I think that's a bit of a trend, a, a, a very welcome trend. You wrote a book about the history of Brighton College. Mm. Is there anything that you learned from that exercise that helped you uh, have a, a broader understanding of public schools in general? Yeah, I, I um, one thing I think I probably slightly underplayed when I wrote the public schools book uh, was the their role in I put it their role in in empire and the public schools belief that they were educating people for empire when i wrote the when i wrote the general public schools history i didn't find that many examples of where 
heads would talk about this. But when I was looking through Brighton College magazines and so on, actually, perhaps it was that particular school. But that was talked about a lot. Um, uh, other things I learned that gave me another... Well, I suppose... Um, uh, but again, I, I don't know if I can generalise from the co college to look at schools in general, but I'd say that um, it's a, and, and I get it, it's partly it's a newer thing. I, Brighton College placed a lot of emphasis on self-esteem and happiness and mental health, and I don't talk about it that much in the public schools book. But I think that's partly because. That's quite a recent thing. Um, so at my daughter's state school, there always seems to be a lot of talking about mental health. And my the fact that my daughter, my elder daughter, who's only 11, will knows what mental health means and will talk about it. That's a very different thing from when I was a boy. Um, uh, and it's become bigger at the public schools. And I noticed that a lot at Brighton College. Is there anything else that you want to leave our listeners with today, a thought? Well, I suppose anything I'd say is um, even if you disapprove of public schools, uh, please bear in mind that um, that they're, they're doing their best, that the, the um, public school teachers genuinely believe in the social worth of what they're doing. So um, be kind to them. I suppose that's a general, perhaps that's a general call for a, people to be generally kinder in public debate and um, social media and to, I suppose, respect your opponent. Even if you don't like public schools, please respect your opponent and res respect the um, uh, motives of your opponent. David Turner, this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. My pleasure. My guest today was David Turner author of The Old Boys, The Decline and Rise of the Public School. If you want to order his book, you can do that through Amazon or through Yale University Press. Thanks for listening. Subscribe, tell your friends. See you next time.